Thank you, Amy, and good morning, everyone. Welcome. You can go ahead and have a seat. I'm glad that you're with us here in the sanctuary, and as well, those who are watching online, thank you for joining us this morning. We're concluding a series today in the book of First Peter. The theme of suffering has kind of governed much of what we've uh, addressed, and we'll continue to address that in our time together this morning. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll get into this text. Father, thank you that we can uh, gather here and when we think about uh, the, a theme of suffering, uh, perhaps it's appropriate that we just take, take a moment here in silence and be mindful of our own lives and perhaps suffering that's in our sphere. So we, just in a moment of silence, we pause. And we ask, Father, that we wouldn't be people afraid of suffering, or people who uh, run away from hard things, but that we would be people of hope in the midst of this broken world. That's our prayer. Take us there, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you have watched The Sound of Music, you know the very beginning of The Sound of Music, there's a, I think the phrase says, the golden years. Or if you've seen Cabaret, you know that it's set in the 30s in Germany, and there's this sense of we're just going to sing and dance in spite of everything that's going on around us. In reality, during that season of the 30s in Germany, one poet asked a very poignant question that frames our time together today in the text. This is from his diary. In a universe where all values have been shattered, where religions and histories and literatures and social structures have lost their meaning... What is man to do? That's a really important question, both then and now. (laughs) Because we do live at a time where religions and histories and literatures and social structures have been shattered and have lost their meaning. And so what are we to do? And uh, there's three answers I would posit. In the 30s in Germany, there were three paths, roughly. One path was, well, everything's shattered, Let's build a new meaning on the Isle of Nationalism. And so we'll bring the swastika flag into the church and we'll sing nationalistic hymns and we'll make Germany great again in the same way that in Rwanda the goal was to make Africa great again as a result of a genocide, in the same way that the role was to make Russia great again and the role is to make Russia great again. In a, in a shattered world, let's, let's build a tower, man. Let's, let's make an identity that works for us. For for us, not others necessarily, but for us. Let's do that. Very popular. In fact, (laughs) the governing paradigm. Others were like this. You know what? The world's insane, so I'm just going to withdraw. And I'm going to get lost in the pursuit of my own personal pleasures and preservation. And so I'll build my fences and protect my assets and raise my family and teach my family to be good little Christians so that they're monogamous and sober and tithing and the world can go to hell because I can't control the world. That's an option. (laughs) And then there's a third way. And the third way is the narrow path. It's the way of living into the kingdom values of Christ and calling others to live into those same values by virtue of our example of, watch this, our example of right in the midst of a world on fire, serving a broken, angry, fearful, hurting, idolatrous world. Even though that means swimming upstream not only against prevailing culture, but often it means swimming upstream against 
the tides and currents of institutional religion. (laughs) And so how am I going to serve faithfully rather than uh, adopt the prevailing idols of culture or withdraw into kind of private piety? How am I going to do that? Uh, A group that are heroic in my life, probably because I've spent uh, many, many weeks over the years uh, traveling in Europe and teaching in Germany, a, a group that is influential is the Fellowship of the White Rose, a group that wrote uh, resistance literature and distributed it, particularly in southern Germany during the war, advocating for the German people that they actively resist the movements of Hitler and the movements of nationalism, that in order to save Germany, they need to lose the war. That's what they wrote. And the young people who were involved in the White Rose were all ultimately arrested and uh, publicly uh, beheaded, executed. But uh, uh, one of them, Hans Scholl, being his name, uh, he had read in a newspaper of the arrest and ultimate execution of some German communists and social democrats who had resisted the Nazis. They had resisted and caught. And then there was a big public trial, and then they were, they were hung. And so Hans, in his diary, this is what he writes. Where are the Christians? And there's a bunch of exclamation points. That's why I shouted it. Where are the Christians? Why is it that the communists and the democrats have the courage to resist lies and idolatry? Should we stand here with empty hands at the end of the war when people will ask of us, the church, the question, and what did you do? What will we say? That's a good question for this moment right now. (laughs) Where are the Christians? What is man to do in a world on fire? Well, in a culture of instant gratification, consumerism, and comfort, Peter's countercultural path to finding life and meaning rings as true today as it did when he wrote in the first century as we learn to embrace suffering. So what, what are we to do? And I think the answer would be found this morning in this text less regarding what we're to do than what we're to be, though being leads to doing. And we're to be three things. First of all, and it's in your, it's in your outline, if you love three points, and I do, uh, be a humble servant, be awake, not anxious, be a hormesis fan. And if you don't know what hormesis is, too bad, you have to stay to the end, and then you'll find out, right? So we're going to start with this, be a humble servant. It's in the text, it's in verse 2, verse 5, verse 6. There's this notion that we're called to be an example to others, an, ex- an example to, in particular, an example within this community of faith. So let me just read, uh, beginning in verse 2, right? Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. I want to pick on this word shepherding for just a minute here. And if we're called to be humble servants, be shepherds, how, how can we do that? There's three observations. Uh, first of all, uh, we're, we're to follow Jesus as an example. Second, we're to be intergenerational. Third, we're to be an example. But we have to start with this. If I'm called to shepherd, I'm a shepherd under the ultimate shepherd. Does that make sense? Like literally, we who lead churches are called in the New Testament under shepherds. We're not shepherds. We're shepherds under a shepherd. And there's only one good shepherd. Jesus said it, John 10, I am the like definite article, 81-point font, I'm the good shepherd. All, all the other shepherds are sub 
good. <laughs> like less than good, I'm the good one, follow me, right? And so it's in the nature of a good shepherd to have one goal, and it's the well-being of those under the care of the shepherd. So if, if you're called to be an example to those uh, with less authority than you, less influence than you, or younger than you, and by the way, all of you are called to be that example. If you're called to be such an example, uh, then use Jesus as an example. And when we use Jesus as an example, we realize that Jesus never kind of had to resort to a power play. Do you know what I mean by that? Like if the disciples said, well, why should I do this? He, wouldn't be, he, he never said, because I'm God, that's why. So just you know, shut up and obey me. Like he never had to pull the, the, the I'm the parent card. Or I'm the boss card. Like in our culture, um, authority is incredibly hierarchical, right? And so in a hierarchical culture, you don't need to give a reason other than you're an authority. And what Jesus is saying here is that's not good leadership. That's not good mentoring. That's not good discipleship. Uh, Take your cue from Jesus who leads through the example of service and laying down one's life. So, like, if you need examples of how not to lead, there are plenty of pastors using their congregation as a platform and means to achieve wealth and prestige. There are plenty of politicians using their constituents to strengthen their own wealth and power. There are plenty of CEOs using the company as a means to, you know, increase their stock options and their net worth. There are plenty of parents who view their children's success as the validation of their own ego, and so they become demanding that their children confirm, conform to their image of what they want for their, for their kids. But none of that is what is being spoken of here. Like what's being spoken of here is we're born, all of us, in order to be these kind of vessels that pour out blessing to others. So we're freely receiving in order that we might freely give. We're filled to pour out, blessed to be a blessing. We're transformed into people of light in order that, as Jesus said, we might let our light so shine, right? So never stop being a a sheep is what I'm saying. Like, always understand that you're, you're receiving from the good shepherd, and now, as the good shepherd has served you, now you serve others. That's your calling as a person of influence, to be a servant, a servant. Not a power play, but a servant. And it's just, I'm just going to say, it's just utterly contrary to kind of a military construct, to kind of a CEO business construct, to, to the Roman construct of the day in which First Peter was written, where, you know, Caesar was Lord. He had all the authority, all the power. Don't go there. Make a difference by serving. That's the first thing. Second thing, closely tied to it, be intergenerational. He's saying here, hey, if you're an elder... Uh, then shepherd those under your charge. And I'm going to, by way of application, you could debate this, but by way of application, I'm going to just say here, one of the uses of the word elder is this. I'm older than you. <laughs> so I'm an elder to you. You're older than Sally. So you're an elder to Sally. Sally's older than Anne. So Anne's uh, uh, an elder to Lucy. <laughs> do, do you see? Like everyone in the room can look around and say, there is someone who I can pour into. There's someone. So find that person and serve. This is a call, I believe, 
to intergenerational reality in ministry, right? We're called to always be looking and asking the question, how can I pass the torch of vibrant living faith? How can I pass the torch to the next generation? And I'm going to say it's challenging on two fronts. If you're older, you're often like this. I got nothing to give because I don't understand TikTok and I don't know who the new artists are and I've never been to Burning Man and, and, and so, like, I have nothing. I got, I got nothing. I'm irrelevant. I'm a fossil, right? I don't wear the right shoes. I don't wear the right clothes. I don't say the right things. I, hopeless, right? I find now, as an old guy, there are times I've spoken at places and made movie references and no one laughs. And it's because no one has seen that movie that I saw when I was 19 years old, right? So, like, it's easy as we get older to go, oh, I, I'm, I'm just totally irrelevant now. I have always wondered when I'll stop traveling and speaking at schools because I'll go and, and then the students will say in the evaluations, who is this fossil? We don't want him back, right? Because I feel that in my being. And some of you may as well, right? Can I, can I just say to you, no. Like, all of us by faith have to believe that though we've made mistakes in our lives, though culture has moved on without us, though, though there are things that we don't understand in young people, God has curated in every soul in the room wisdom. There's some wisdom there. So you've learned from your successes, but you've also learned from your mistakes, and you have wisdom. So the point here is this, freely give the wisdom that God has given to you Believing that there are people who want the wisdom. And so for the older people in the room, I would say, you, you need to find someone into whom you can pour your life. But then there's a challenge for young people too. Sometimes young people are like this. Yeah, we don't want to learn anything from you because look at the world. You guys are in charge and it's a stinking disaster, right? And so uh, we, we, we wanna, we're going we're gonna to create a whole new thing. And I heard all, I heard all the time in kind of ecclesiological circles, right? The church has failed. The church is a disaster. The church is a mess. So we're going to start a new church. And I've even heard it. We're going to do church right, finally, for the first time, right? 2,000 years. Everybody's blown it. We get it now. No, uh, maybe you could learn something from people who've walked on this road a little bit further than you. And so uh, we want to be, as elders always looking down the road, trying to invest. And those who are younger in the room, I want you to realize that everyone who's gone before you has something to offer you by way of wisdom, things that they've learned. When this works, we come together intergenerationally. A beautiful illustration of this at Bethany is mops. There are other illustrations, but the Mothers of Preschools ministry has for, you know, 25 years or so, done this thing where older moms are mentoring younger moms. And it, it's the way it's supposed to work. So, uh, you want to be intergenerational. And finally, you want to be an example. You want to be an example. This means, this requires, like being an example requires embodiment and accessibility. 
In other words, I can't be a very good example to you just by teaching. I can be a better example to you by inviting you to my house and you come on a hike with me or something like that. I can be a better example if we share a meal together. I can be a, I can be a better example when, when my life is accessible. My wife and I started a hospitality ministry 32 years ago in the Cascades because at the end of the 80s, there were like famous pastors on newly minted cable television who would stand up on a Sunday morning and tell the nation God had spoken to them and unless they got $10 million, they were going to die. And they were asking people to send money in and then there would be a financial scandal or a sexual scandal or a leadership scandal. And these guys were melting down one after the other. They were falling like dominoes, late 80s, so that there was this huge degree of cynicism in this little village where I was a pastor called Friday Harbor. <laughs> so I walk into the... the um, clubhouse of the golf course, the one time in my life I played nine holes of golf, I walk in and um, here's all these quote unquote, you know, pagan guys who knew who I am as a pastor. And as soon as they walk in, they all pull their wallets out en masse. Hey, Reverend, has God spoke to you in a dream? How much do you need? And I want to crawl under a table because I was like this. This is what they think Christianity is. How can we reframe it? Not by preaching. <laughs> Only by like opening your life to people. Can people see the example? Because so much that's valuable is caught rather than taught. First Thessalonians 1 is where Paul says, hey, when we were among you Thessalonians, it wasn't our desire to just you know, pump doctrine into you, like we're going to unscrew your head and pour some doctrine in. You'll go away changed. No, no. We wanted to share with you our very lives. So we got to share life. It's not good for us to be alone. We're not adequate to do this on our own. We need a strength that we don't have, but we're called to be people who are kind of radically available for others so that we can share what God has given us and radically willing in humility to seek others. We need both. Uh, I, I referenced Sophie Scholl and the Fellowship of the White Rose. When I teach in Germany, uh, I'll ask the question, who knows about Sophie Scholl? Everybody raises their hand. Every German student knows. She's famous like Abraham Lincoln or Martin MLK is famous here. Everybody knows Sophie Scholl. You can go to her grave to this day and there's always white roses on, on her tombstone because Germans just do that as a, as a memorial as a way of saying, may this never happen again, what happened in the 30s and 40s. So she's famous. But then I'll ask the next question. Who knows Carl Muth and nobody raises their hands? And I go, oh, well, uh, Sophie and Hans and, and the rest of the White Rose Fellowship, they did what they did because of this unknown guy named Carl Muth. Who's Carl Muth? Well, Carl Muth, I'll, I'll read a little bit about him for you. He was, uh, he was a guy who started a newspaper like a little journal that he would mail out called Hawkland or Highland as a Catholic journal. And he started in 1903 and it was banned in 1941 by the Nazis. And so this was his livelihood. And now he's 73 years old and he can't publish his little thing anymore. And so he lives alone. He was single his whole life, lived alone in a small house <clears throat> in the forest on the outskirts of Munich, Munich, bursting with books and journals and manuscripts. And so one day, Hans Scholl 
uh, goes up to the door of this guy named Carl Muth, knocks on the door, introduces himself, and immediately these two connect, and eventually Hans and his sister Sophie, they, they, they move in uh, and live with Carl Muth in the forest, helping chop his firewood, helping tend his garden, and spending every night drinking good German beer and talking theology. And Hans would write later, it was because of Carl Muth that I had the courage to cross over the line and be willing to lay down my life for the cause to which God had called me. So here's this invisible guy uh, named Carl Muth. And what Hans and Sophie write is this. The Scholes came by to see this old publisher and ultimately spent time living with him. They all felt about him as Hans did even though they, the White Rose people, were predominantly Protestants and he was a Catholic, they clung to him and his private world of inner exile as if it were their anchor to sanity in a world gone mad. I want to tell you, we live in a world gone mad. And I want to tell you this as well. Uh, There are people hungry for an anchor of sanity. And uh, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we could be anchors of sanity in a world gone mad because we take discipleship seriously and kingdom seriously and Jesus seriously. And might our world get hard? Yes. Might we lose our platform? Yes. But I live in the woods with a bunch of books. (laughs) And I'd like to be the one pouring into a new generation, available as a servant and may be said of all of us. So that's the first thing. We want to be this example. Second, we want to be awake, but not anxious. This is verses 7 through 9. And in these verses, uh, we're told to uh, humble ourselves, cast our anxiety on him, and, and, and resist the devil, knowing that the suffering that you are in the midst of is creating a a work in the world, right? So I want to focus in here for just a minute on, yes, be awake, but also don't be anxious. And here's the challenge. If If I'm awake on my own in this moment in history, if I'm awake, I'm anxious. Do you know what I mean by that? If I'm awake, that means I'm watching the news and I'm aware of of the world around me. And if I'm watching the news and I'm aware of the world around me, then I know that the Southwest is running out of water and the Rhine River is so small now that shipping containers can't any longer navigate where they're intended to go. And Texas just had a a once-in-a-thousand-year storm, not to mention uh, once-in-a-thousand-year drought in Africa, once-in-a-thousand-year drought in China, racism, sexism, disappearing glaciers, materialism, loneliness, fear, anxiety, depression, gun violence, road rage, opiate addiction, all at record highs, still rising. I haven't even mentioned Ukraine or famine in Africa or democracy hanging by a thread or the phobias, phobias in America that incite violence toward immigrants and all forms of minorities. That's the world I live in. And so, yeah, if I'm awake, I don't even sleep at night. I'm literally awake all the time because of fear and anxiety and anger and rage. What's going on in the world? And the other option then is to uh, not be awake. So if I'm going to avoid anxiety i got to shrink my world down so it's about my personal well-being. And I turn the news off, 
and then all I do is CrossFit, Netflix, couple friends, good wine, and, I, and, I, and I'm happy. And if I'm really holy, then I'll take my kids to church as well. So now my, I'm at peace because I'm living in this quote-unquote golden age, but it's, that's cabaret, man. The world's on fire. So how can I be awake and not anxious? Here's the answer, verse 7. Awake makes me anxious. It will make me anxious. Therefore, I have to cast, and the word is throw, I have to throw my anxiety away. Throw it back to God. So I'm, so I'm awake. I, I embrace the reality that my world is on fire. I embrace the, the, the reality that democracy hangs by a thread. I, I embrace the reality that there's a disappearing middle class. I embrace the reality that there's human trafficking and, and private addictions and that the church is often misrepresented in culture as uh, racist and nationalistic and homophobic. I embrace all of that. And then I go, I hate this. And then I have, to, I have to say, God, I can't handle it. So I throw it, even as he's going to throw that ball right now. <laughs> I throw it without walking away. Are you with me? I don't walk away. I'm still in it, but I'm trying to give God the anxiety. Absolutely essential that we cast our anxiety. Why? Because Philippians 4, 6 says it this way. When I cast my anxiety, the peace of God that is absolutely beyond understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And then I can read in the diary of Sophie Scholl the night before her execution. <laughs> I did the right thing. God is with me. The sun is rising. The clouds are beautiful. It's a shame I must go, but I'm going to glory. Cast your anxiety. This is, of course, tied to humility because um, unless I cast my anxiety, if I'm going to stay awake, then I'm going to fight my anxiety. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to power through and kind of, I'm going to deal with my fear, deal with my rage, deal with my my frustration. It's on me, man. I'm going to fix it. It's exhausting. It, it, It takes a great deal of humility to say, I don't have what it takes and I may have to cast that anxiety 500 times. But casting my anxiety away is better than falling asleep. That's what this text is saying. When um, eight years ago when my wife and I were hiking through the Alps, uh, my oldest daughter was with us for a period of that and we had a particular day when we hiked down into a village Spent the afternoon looking for lodging. There was none. There was none in this little village. We spent all afternoon looking, and then uh, we hiked back to a, or took a bus or something. We ended up back at a little visitor center, and we got there five minutes before it closed, and I, I made a phone call and found out through the translation, my daughter speaks German, that uh, there's one room left in this entire river valley, and it's four miles back up the hill, 1,500 feet of elevation gain from where we had just hiked down. And... Uh, I was like this, okay then, let's put our packs on, let's go, we're going to power through, we're Americans, man, we don't need help from anybody, we're going we're gonna to do this. And my wife's like, whatever, she sees a car parked by the, like the closing visitor center, and she goes and literally knocks on the window, 
They roll the window down. She bursts into tears. We're Americans, and we've hiked too far today for our human bodies, and uh, we don't have a room, but there's a room four miles up the road. Would you give us a ride? There's this couple from Berlin, and I'm just horrified. Like, (laughs) how can you do this? And then this couple spoke for a moment, and they were like, this would be so fun. We'd love to give you a ride. And we hopped in the back of the car, and they put their packs in the back of their thing, and they told us about their vacation, and they heard about our journey, and we made two new friends, and then we uh, landed at a feast that was prepared for us by our new hostess, and all because someone had the humility to say, I can't handle this anymore. Yeah, we need to name our anxiety so that we can let it go. And here's the last thing, be a Hermosis fan. Hormesis, Hermesis, be a Hermesis fan. What do I mean by that? I simply mean this, that medically, a little bit of suffering is good for you. In fact, a little bit of toxin is called what? Hello, a vaccination, right? A a, a little bit of exercise is called what? Better mitochondria, better, better ATP, right? More endurance. A little bit is good. So welcome the suffering that God has given you. Why? Because we know from the the scriptures, the scriptures tell us God will not allow anything to come into your life that you can't handle. I mean, even horrific, unspeakable stuff. Look, God allows it in a fallen world. Not only does God allow it, but watch this. God can use it. God can use anything that comes into your life to make you look more like Jesus. How do I know this? Romans 8, 28 and 29. Romans 8, 28 God causes all things to work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, God's purpose, that you would look more like Jesus. That's God's purpose for you, for me. What's the promise? Nothing can come into my life that won't make me more like Jesus if I welcome it and cast the anxiety away. Everything can be redemptive so that I can say, Welcome, frustration. Welcome, day at the oncology ward. Welcome, loss. Welcome, fear. Why? Not because I love loss or fear or the oncology ward, but I can welcome unforeseen and unwanted events in my life because I know by faith God can use this to transform me. Welcome, And now, God, this thing is making me anxious. I give that back to you. And now, rather than living a life always guarded because we're afraid of what's going to happen next, there's a peace. A peace, by the way, Philippians 4, that passes all understanding. This isn't the point of the sermon, but in Mark 4, 17... It says that some seed grew up and it was the fear of suffering that caused the seed uh, to die and no longer bear fruit. It was the fear of suffering. Can I just say, American church, we got to get over our fear of suffering. Carl Muth, he said one of the problems in America is they have an inadequate theology of suffering. And we do. Every morning I take a cold shower. Not the point of sermon. But I, but I literally say, welcome cold. As my body is stinging and I want to get out. 
And then 30 seconds later, I relax. And a minute after that, my pulse goes from 90 to 60. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As we close this morning, I'm going to invite you two ways to respond in these prayer books. Maybe write these down so you can come up and write and let people know. This week, I will welcome what God will teach me through. And then you fill in the blank. What are you carrying right now? What are you afraid of right now? What's your burden? This week, welcome. I welcome the faculty meeting. (laughs) I welcome the oncology ward. I welcome the memorial service. Not because I like the thing, but I welcome God what you will teach me through the thing. I welcome. And then going back to the earlier part of the sermon, another way you could respond, maybe God is speaking to you this morning. I will shepherd as an elder, and then you just think of a name and pray for that person. Who are you investing in? Because our calling in a world gone mad is for each of us to become Carl Muth. Nobody may know our name, it doesn't matter. We're investing in the next generation. And that's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that uh, when the world's on fire, you ground us and give us hope and teach us to live as people of not only courage in the midst, but people of peace in the midst. That's amazing to me. And so I pray now that even as we sing, your spirit would be bringing to mind those areas where we need to be welcoming you and those areas where we need to be eldering. Give us a grace to respond, Father. Speak to us now, and we'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray.